This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. While the gist is dedicated to explicit content, today we have left the profane fields to lay fallow. It's Monday, September 26th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and the pound is getting pounded. Now, the British pound has fallen to its lowest level ever against the US dollar. In early Asia trade, sterling fell to $1.03 before regaining some ground to around $1.06. Wild-haired, norm-defying Boris Johnson knew not to commit to the actions that stayed reliable Liz Truss and her chancellor of the exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng, announced, which is tax cuts that no Western economy thought was a good idea. If you want tax cuts, you have to pay for them somehow. And now borrowing is pricier. If you want tax cuts, you're saying that people have more spending power, exactly the opposite of what you want to do as the economy overheats. So now the currency is in crisis, is the phrase that's crying out to be uttered. Pound sterling free falling. That sounds accurate too. Here's how Prime Minister Trust sounded on Sky News. We should be setting our tax policy on the basis of what is going to help our country become successful. I noticed this verbal pattern in an interview with CNN that aired Sunday. The words are apportioned out in short bursts that don't seem to stop in logical places. But what we've also seen is huge warmth towards King Charles III. And I'm you know, very, very uh, supportive This would be fine if her policies wouldn't result in trade imbalances. I feel badly highlighting speech patterns so petty, but I think she created a giant problem for her new government. And that is what's important. What's important... Strengthening the pound? ...is that we protect... The pound. And respect. Trade. The positions of both the. Importers and exporters. Nationalist community in Northern Ireland. Didn't think that was where it was going. Thought we were going somewhere else. Not sure if the British economy has time to get back from wherever we went. U.S. Federal Reserve officials are warning that U.K. tax cuts increase the risk of a global recession. The dollar is, in fact, a little too strong for its own good. But what the new prime minister has done to the pound is something like unilateral disarmament. I bet that all over Great Britain, the phrase, in Liz Truss we trust, is hardly flowing easily off the tongue. On the show today, I sound off on Sound on Sound. But first, Massimo Piliucci is a professor of philosophy at the City College of New York. His new book is The Quest for Character. It discusses how politicians are modern-day philosophers, and social media could represent a new training ground for stoicism. If you take away the right lessons, Massimo Piliucci is next. (music) 
The important thing when selecting for and electing, as we have the privilege to do here in a democracy, for the right leaders is to make sure they have the right character, which is great, except for a couple things like no one can define character and your definition of character seems to entirely comport with the end goal of whoever you wanted to vote for in the first place. Actually, there are some people who could define character, people who've been trying to do so for millennia. Massimo Piliucci is the author of The Quest for Character, what the story of Socrates and Alcibiades teaches us about our search for good leaders. Massimo is a professor of philosophy at the City College of New York, and he does a lot of interesting things online and on podcasts. We're going to talk all about character and philosophy. Thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure, Mike. If you look at successful politicians um, in democracies, isn't it often the case, maybe even more often than not, that they might not articulate it as I am a philosopher or a practical philosopher, I studied at the feet of philosophers, but they are. They have principles and the principles aren't always, I mean, sometimes the principles are pretty exalted and they've learned life lessons and they're deliberate about applying those lessons in how they do their job. So I would think that Let's take a couple examples. Ronald Reagan and Joe Biden, who neither one of them would be called like the highest of intellects or people with PhDs, but they both seem to have consistent philosophies that are rooted in character and notions of decency so that we could say that though they're transactional, though they're opportunistic, though they're doing everything they need to do to be successful politicians, they kind of are philosophers. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree. In fact, I would go even so far as suggesting that everyone has a philosophy of life, whether they realize it or not. And you can determine more or less what somebody's philosophy of life is by just looking at how they behave. You know, what, what do they do? What are their priorities? What are their values? How do they react under certain uh circumstances. So yeah, absolutely. But I would also argue that precisely because you're going to have a philosophy of life by default, no matter what, then it might be a good idea from time to time, at least to stop and think about it and say, well, is this really something that uh, I should be doing? Is, is Are these really values that I should be holding, et cetera, et cetera, right? So as I said, that's why by philosopher here, we do not want to think of the stuffy academic with a PhD. We want to think of somebody like Socrates uh, or, or Cato or Marcus Aurelius. In other words, somebody or frankly, more if we're looking at more recent history in the United States, like most of the founding fathers. Uh, you know, Washington, Jefferson, uh, you know, Adams, they, they were all philosophers in that sense. Franklin, they were all philosophers in that sense, not in the sense that they spent a lot of time, you know, uh, stuffed in their, in, their, in their libraries, but in the sense that they were aware and they were reflective, critically reflective uh, of, of their own values and, and uh, their, their course of action. So, yes, we're talking philosopher in that sense. It's not by chance, by the way, that many of the founding fathers of the United States actually were very familiar with practical Greco-Roman philosophy, especially with Stoicism and Epicureanism. Uh, you know, one of the major Stoic philosophers of the Roman period was a guy named Epictetus, and uh, he didn't write anything 
directly, but one of his students put together a couple of books. One of these two books is called The Enchiridion, the, the Handbook for How to Live a Good Life. Well, Thomas Jefferson had his personal copy, which is now at the University of Virginia. Uh, George Washington brought his copy in battle uh, in order to inspire himself and his, and his troops. And uh, again, Franklin had his copy. Adams had his copy. So, so we don't need to go back all the way to Greco-Roman uh, the Greco-Roman period to find philosophers and statesmen as philosophers in the way that uh, we have been discussing. Uh, even more recently, I would think, for instance, uh, somebody like uh, Winston Churchill was a philosopher in that sense. Now, again, you may agree or disagree with what he did uh, in, in, in this circumstance or that other circumstance. You know, sometimes he got it right, sometimes he got it wrong by our lights a century later. But he was certainly aware of what he was doing. He was well uh, cultured in, in the history of ideas uh, because he thought that ideas are relevant, they're important. That's, that's how you guide your, your actions. Yeah, I wonder if in the modern world it's even possible. Um, Gary Hart lamented in one of Richard Ben Kramer's books that the hardest thing about being a politician and even an official is that you just don't have time to sit and reflect and read. There's so much input. There's so much data overwhelming you if you're in that job or aspire to that job that it seems to short circuit the basic building blocks of philosophy, which is thinking about things. I think that's an excuse, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, we will do respect to, to Hart. Uh, so the reason for that is because, again, we're not talking about spending hours and hours in the library, uh, you know, on... Uh, studying abstruse and, and difficult concept, concepts. We're talking about, first of all, a background preparation. That is, the notion is you don't even get into politics or statesmanship unless you feel that you have some background. And the background, therefore, is is formed earlier on, not, not once you're already in office. It's too late at that point. The other thing is practical philosophy is not very different from you know, practicing philosophy is not very different from practicing a religion. And I don't see a lot of these people going around complaining that they don't have time to go to church. Well, they can't say it, but they don't do it. I mean, Mike Pence does. Ronald Reagan didn't. Right. They don't do it because they're not interested in doing it, but not because they don't have the time, right? Although, don't you think if you could get as much electoral advantage being photographed on vacation with three books of philosophy under your arm as you could being photographed going in and outside of church on a Sunday, more politicians would do it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, but, but we're not talking about electoral advantage. We're talking about wanting to actually do things in the right way. Now, however, you brought up electoral advantage, and that's why near the end of the book, I claim, I suggest that fundamentally the fault for, for the abysmal state of affairs of modern politics is really ours, ours as in us as individual citizens and, and voters, right? Yeah. Because you can say all you want that, oh, our politicians ought to be this and ought to do that, et cetera, et cetera. But guess what? In a democracy more or less, such as it is in the United States, 
We are the ones who put those people there. It's not that they get there on their own. You know, we, we, if we were living in an autocratic state, then fine. Uh, the, the only other option there is is a revolution. Yeah. Uh, but in uh, in a democratic, more or less democratic country, such as the United States and and uh, other Western countries, ultimately the buck stops with us, not with the politician. Right. And so it is because we don't care enough about character and and virtue and so on and so forth that we got the the people. So we got these people, the people that we deserve. Yeah. So to quote something uh to quote a work based in your era of expertise the fault lies not in our stars but in ourselves that's right but as i think about trying to compare modernity western democracies with ancient greece um there's a little part of me i'm sure there's a part of you that marvels at the fact that philosophers you know socrates and aristotle had such a place of prominence and power sort of flowed through them and their favor was curried and nothing like that exists except you know the celebrities of our era are different and i think not as deep but currying favor from celebrities and affiliating yourself with the endorsement of celebrities is something that goes on and then the role that religion has especially in america has replaced uh, the role of philosophy and then reverence for our founding fathers used to be a very important part of getting elected here so We've replaced some of the philosophic impetus with uh, our own cultural totems, but something like that is going on, at least signaling that you're learning and affiliating yourself with the cultural products that our current culture uh, most elevates. I think that is right. And there's two things that that I like to say about that. One, it's in part, I blame philosophers themselves for this state of affairs because, you know, I mean, there are broader cultural changes, of course, you know, you don't control cultural changes. But philosophy, since the beginning of the 20th century, has in fact uh, entrenched itself in the in the academy. It has become a very highly specialized field. And in fact, philosophers, professional philosophers, have actually grown contemptuous of practical philosophy. They've grown contemptuous of, of writing sentences that uh, 95% of America can understand. Correct. And so a lot of my colleagues, not here at City College, I'm actually lucky here at City College, but in the broader philosophical community, a lot of my colleagues look at what I'm doing and it's like, okay, why are you wasting your time talking about this stuff or, or running about this stuff? They They still have that kind of attitude. However, that is changing. The new generation of philosophers, the young people that are coming into the field now, are actually much more interested in the practical applications into uh, philosophy, into getting into, you know, the, the, the debates of the cultural debates at the time and actually make a contribution to it and talking to people. Uh, and, and we've seen over the last, uh, I would say, at least 10 years, probably more, a uh, sudden and surprising resurgence of practical philosophy. Stoicism is the obvious example. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, almost nobody had heard of Stoicism. And if you had, you were thinking of, you know, stiff upper lip uh, in, in the Brit style. Now, you've, Amazon is full of books on on how to be a Stoic and and uh, and how to practice Stoicism, etc., etc. Uh, there are not, not only conferences about it, but, but actual events for the general public that draw hundreds or thousands of people. So that's one example of changes. But practical philosophy in general, to give you an example, here in uh, in New York for a few years now, uh, 
people have been organizing something known as a Night of Philosophy, which is actually an international event. It's not just in New York. And it is what it sounds like. That is, it's it's an entire night. It starts at 7 o'clock in the evening, ends at 7 o'clock in the morning. And it's a bunch of philosophers talking to the public. Now, I was invited to one of the first ones of these things as a speaker. Yeah. And I said, sure, that sounds like fun. I hope not in I the said, 3 to 4 a.m. hour. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I said, what kind of uh, time slot are you giving me? And, and that's actually 3 o'clock, oh, like 3.30 in the morning. Yeah. I said, sure, That's where all the best fine. ideas happen because no one's aware enough to rebut them. <laughs> Precisely. So I said, fine, no, no, not a problem. I'll, be there. I'll, I'll go there with my friends and, and, you know, and, uh, and my partner and we'll have fun. No, it was a completely full event, standing room only. And that was at 3 o'clock in the morning. So that shows that there is actually a hunger for philosophy understood in that sense. And in fact, you mentioned religion. I would say that one of the major reasons for a resurgence of practical philosophy is the decline of mainstream religion. This has been going on for now decades. Uh, the number of people that consider themselves religious and belonging to any of the mainstream denominations uh, is going down significantly. Even in the United States, which is notoriously uh, the most religious nation among among Western countries. In the rest of the Western world, it's gone down dramatically. I mean, the, the numbers are astonishing. In the UK, only about 5% of the population recognizes itself as religious, actively religious. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a bunch of atheists, however. And it just means that there are people who do not buy any more into the mainstream religions, that they still need a frame of reference. We still need a way of sort of thinking about the world, prioritizing things, you know, getting notions of right and wrong and stuff like that. And philosophy historically for more than two millennia has been the other source of uh, meaning and purpose and, and, and ethics. Yes, because in a world where we're inundated with paroxysms of outrage, to have some grounding, to have some articulable principles uh, provides a lot, you know, not just comfort, but an intellectual way of navigating uh, what could be every other Twitter debate whipsawing you to and fro. So it was once religion, and now it's, okay, let's have some articulable principles. What is within our reach? What can we really control in life? Because it seems like so much of life is out of control. And Stoicism says there are just a few things you can control. You can control your character, you can control your considered judgment of the world, and you can control whether to act or not to act. Know that, and then that's a good way to deal with the last 24 Twitter outrages. You've got some. <laughs> you've got a guiding light. And I can see that. That's right. I can see the appeal of that. That's right. I, I actually do consider social media as a v excellent training ground for stoic, Stoics because, uh, yeah, what you're absolutely right. What you control, what is up to you, as uh, Epictetus would say, is only your judgments and your, your decisions to act or not to act and nothing else. That, that's it. Uh, who we are, in fact, for the Stoics is just a little tiny little part of the, of the human brain that it's in charge of. Uh, you know, decision making, and that's it. Uh, outside, anything else is not under your control. Not even your own body is under your control. 
uh, right? I mean, you can you can have uh, you can follow the best diet you like, the most healthy diet. You can go to the gym all the all the time, and then you cross the street, and a, and a car is gonna hit you, and uh, you're gonna break a leg, or you know, a virus uh, out of China is gonna get, is gonna get you. Right, right, right. And our modern society is giving us the illusion of control. Yes. You know, maybe you could wear the mask and avoid coronavirus, but maybe not, depending on if everyone else doesn't do it. And so that probably creates dissonance. Like, oh, I thought I had this control. I thought I wouldn't get cancer if I ate like this. A stoic would definitely help navigate that. But what would a stoic say about tilting the odds in your favor in terms of some of these health outcomes? Yeah, I think it, it, I think that's correct. I mean, the, the notion is that Yes, only my decisions and my judgments are up to me, not the outcomes of those of those actions on my actions, right? But of course, there is a connection between my judgments and my actions, uh, and, you know, my intentions and and the, those outcomes. So, it is on the one hand, it is certainly the case that even if I follow a healthy diet and go to the gym every day, I might still die of cancer, you know, five years later. But the chances are far lower that that outcome is actually going going to to be to be the case to be instantiated. So, yes, the the not only it's not just a question of realizing what is up to you and what is not up to you, but also realizing that because things are causally interconnected, there is always connections between your actions and the outcomes of those actions. Then yes, you're tilting the odds in your favor. You're you're increasing the chances. You're you're, you're so long as you are okay from the get-go with the notion that that's all you're doing. That is, you're not actually controlling the outcomes. You're simply trying to tilt the the probabilities in your favor. But you need to be able to accept from the get-go that despite your best efforts, things might not work that way. Massimo Pigliucci is professor of philosophy at the City College of New York. His latest book is The Quest for Character, what the story of Socrates and Alcibiades teaches us about our search for good leaders. A pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. I'm standing in a field of strangers under the night sky. We're all facing the same direction, awaiting the arrival of a dark-clad chanteuse who will appear to spin tales of enchantment and landslides, challenging us all to shatter our illusion of loves. It was Stevie Nicks. Black and gold dust woman, take your silver spoon. there to see Stevie Nicks, and the mood was festive, makes sense, it was a festival. The crowd was much younger than Stevie, but not young, which is fine, I'm getting older too. This was the culmination of the first night of the Sound on Sound Music Festival, Bridgeport, Connecticut. That night, a dozen bands played, the Lumineers, Father John Misty, Band of Horses, and of course Stevie. This inaugural outdoor festival for Bridgeport sold not even as many tickets as this GIST episode will have listeners. But of course, to listen to the GIST, you don't have to stand outside and wait for every other listener to order their veggie hummus wrap. Now, maybe you have been to an outdoor festival. I try to avoid them, but there I was. Now, based on your own experience or what you imagine the strengths and flaws of an outdoor festival might be, let's do a little quiz. I'll ask you some questions. Please answer internally. Don't do so outside. At an outdoor festival, are lines for food and drink very swift 
or are they maybe somewhat long and tedious? What about portable toilets? Very clean or kind of too quite disgusting? Parking, exceedingly easy in and out or in fact quite congested? I'm going to assume that the latter set of answers all apply. And guess what? They did at the Sound on Sound Festival. Not to a horrific or unfathomable degree, but they all fell somewhere in the range of disappointing. I know this because I spoke to dozens of people there. You have a lot of time to talk to fellow concert goers waiting on lines for, I timed it, 45 minutes to get a beer. And during the wait, the tenor of the conversation among my fellow concert goers was, you know, waiting in line sucks. These lines are long. Yeah, but the roots are playing. Or I heard they ran out of fried dough. Yeah, but fried dough isn't good for you. I think Brandy Carlisle may be. 29 to 39,000 people seemed to have a pretty good time despite inconveniences. A thousand people did not, and all of them went from waiting in line to grousing online to compare this rootsy Americana light rock music festival to being herded on a death march into a prisoner of war camp. At Jill Menges tweets, Hashtag sound on sound overcrowding is dangerous. My husband overheated, turned white, and was fainting. Nowhere to go. Luckily, the people behind us made a wall with their bodies and gave us room to open a chair so we could get him to a seat. Emergency services wouldn't have made it to us. So I will translate what happened. A guy got lightheaded, but then was fine. At Thomas Rain tweets, hashtag sound on sound, hashtag fail. This festival is trash. Lines are ridiculous. Acoustics are horrible. Not nearly enough space. FYI, I was at Woodstock 99 and still think this is bad. At Jess Stone VT writes, I'm posting this so I could join the inevitable class action lawsuit. That was the sentiment. Firefest 2.0. Let's wait for the Netflix documentary. Shame, shame, shame. They all seem to be bonding over how much they hated sound on sound. I feel kind of bad about mellowing their harsh, but I got to note that there was a really clever plan in place and it worked well. They had two stages there. So one could engage in setup for the next act as an act was playing, and that meant there was almost no downtime in between, just a lot of music, which prompted one social media poster to complain. They had zero downtime in between sets. One band would finish on one stage and the next would immediately start on the other stage. So if you had to go to the bathroom or get food and drink, you were missing music. They were literally scheduled five minutes apart. Yeah, I know. That was good. This poster talked about her panic from the crowds, making it unenjoyable, and added of the second day of offerings, and I wasn't there. Oh, I almost forgot. Performers from day one took their merch back. People went to buy camp shirts, that's a band, camp with two A's, today, and were told the band took their merch back. If you didn't get a shirt on day one, you are shit out of luck for day two. Yeah, added to the class action, I can't buy a concert t-shirt for 45 bucks in 2022. I can't fathom another way to buy merchandise. The online kvetching garnered local TV coverage. One woman who was quoted lodged this complaint. As soon as it got dark out, we couldn't see anything. I can confirm. The attendee was quoted on a local Connecticut TV station. I noticed the people that local stations quoted with complaints were all recorded over Zoom. The stations had found folks who were registering their dissatisfaction on social media, reached out and asked them of their experience, which is fine. No, no critique there. Well, the people were critiquing, not my critique of the stations. But whenever these same stations and these same reports showed any footage of the actual event that the news crews who were there in person recorded, this was always the sentiment. 
Um, the acts that I saw today were pretty much amazing. Uh, the way that they organized it today was also amazing. I know that there were a lot of concerns from Saturday that they addressed. I'm pretty impressed by what they've done here. You know, for this being the first year, I feel like it's impressive and the lineup is, is incredible. Fans were killing it. You guys did a great job. I'm not cherry picking or turd plurking. The most outrageous complaints. Things apparently did improve on Sunday, but on Saturday, the comments were running 99 to 1 in scorched condemnation of what in actuality was an overall pleasant but flawed music festival. But that shouldn't surprise us because most of life, most of actual life as lived is somewhere in between pretty good and kind of flawed. That's the actual ceiling and floor for the overwhelming majority of what we do and experience. It's all bracketed by pretty good or kind of flawed. But the expression of this experience, especially online, is rapturous or calamitous. A study done by Northwestern, and they've been studying this for years, where they look at Yelp reviews. In 2022, 51% of Yelp reviews, five stars. 18% one star. But if you go to the middle, you know, where most things actually lay, 8% of experiences of any kind get three stars. 6% get two stars. And yes, we all know about the polarizing nature of social media. But it takes an experience like this to emphasize just how warped our impressions are. At the festival, if one were to start railing about how horrible the festival was in the middle of other people at the festival, he or she, the railer, would be greeted with, you know, kind of uncomfortable nods and avoidance. All right, yeah, you know, we all see the lines long. That is, in fact, how I learned that your third grade class did a choral arrangement of landslide. We had a lot of time to talk. But yeah, uh, you know, don't sign me up for the lawsuit. Twitter is not just disproportionately outraged. It's not just tending or trending toward the extreme. It's not just overwhelmingly inflammatory. It's almost entirely hair on fire. What the social media audience is fed bears so little resemblance to actual events as to act very much like propaganda. Think about actual propaganda outlets, whatever that phrase means to you. It could be the average article on The Federalist or the average segment taken up by the Young Turks or a Brett Bear Fox segment on Fox News. All are actually, on average, much closer to the truth than the so-called real experiences as supplied by actual citizens under the norms and algorithms of Twitter. They say that thunder only happens when it's raining, but it is a non-stop tempest out there. It's a natural disaster. It's a crime against humanity. It's a calamity to which attention must be paid. Give me the hashtags. Back up the hashtag truck. Or as we call all of this cataclysm in the actual world, it's kind of flawed, but pretty good. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the only woman to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Fleetwood Mac in 1998 and then as a solo artist in 2019. I think I'm getting that right. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Lipson's Advertise Cast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oom peru, peru, do peru. And thanks for listening. 